Hello and welcome to Timber Sycamore Season 2, Episode 2, where we will be discussing neoliberalism, the Chicago School, and the Chicago Boys. We are your hosts, Michael Petroselli. And I am Hayden DePriest. I want to introduce the episode next time. Okay. All right. I'll hold you to it. Anyways. So, what are we really looking at today, Hayes? So, today we are going to be looking at the... Chicago School of Economics, through its foundation in the 1930s by the first generation, its real development during the second generation sometime in the 60s and 70s, and its wholesale import into Latin America and the connections between Milton Friedman and some of these Latin American cronies that we'll be discussing, as well as the influence that it had uh, quite particularly on Chile, but also on Latin America as a whole. Right, and... In some ways, most countries that now are under IMF or World Bank loans, right? Yes, exactly. So I guess going back to the beginning, there's this conference in Paris in 38. Oh, we're going to start with that. Okay. Well, I feel like that is the place where it all begins. We can start elsewhere. Uh, I should introduce a little bit more of the just main actors. So the Chicago School, University of Chicago has been established uh, for... Over a century by this point, I believe, right? Yes. Sometime during the 19th century. So we're not talking about the Chicago School insofar as the University of Chicago, but we're talking about the Chicago School as a school of economic thought. Uh, we talk about the principal founder at the outset being somebody named Frank Knight. Yes. Very famous economic theorist, eventually became the biggest influence on Friedrich Hayek of the Austrian School. My cat's going yeah. crazy. That makes sense. Uh, so Frank Knight uh, occupies this kind of middle ground between uh, classical economics and Chicago school economics, right? Yeah. So Frank Knight, again, being at the outset, not as insane as some of these other people, but still an innovator when it comes to in, in a number of different ways. Principal among the achievements of the Chicago School, as is elocuted by members of the Chicago School, is treating economics like one of the hard sciences, as opposed to a sort of soft science or something that's like adjacent to sociology. Yeah, as opposed to something that involves human beings. Yeah. And I only say that in the sense that, like, again, so several, this same, this same kind of uh, achievement is credited to several other people. Uh, Ricardo and Smith is it's attributed to by certain kinds of uh, liberals or libertarians, classical liberals. It is also attributed quite frequently to Karl Marx by Marxists. Yeah, for better or worse. Uh, for well, for worse probably. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, if we are not red pepper emojis, do not subscribe to that. Uh, please do not subscribe to that form of communism. It is very, it is very awful, and uh, and you will isolate yourself from some really good thinkers because you just look at the world in a way that is. Uh, uh, not strictly uh, correct. Right. I have no argument against dialectical materialism being a method for understanding scientific development and a method of performing science. Uh, I do have a problem with Marxists uh, sitting down and worshiping science as if uh, calling Marxism a science somehow makes like we should be moving away from that into the opposite direction where we say yeah, we should not be we should not we should not worship at the altar of scientism that is a extremely cringe thing to do 
Yeah. To this day, the best definition of science I've found is D.B. Cooper, who says that it is a specific body of knowledge used to understand the world. I'm sorry, from who? D.B. Cooper. The guy that flew out of the plane? No. Different D.B. Cooper? Uh, D.G. Cooper, sorry. Okay, thank you. David Graham Cooper. He is a South African communist who trains in the Soviet Union and a psychiatrist okay. or anti-psychiatrist. But That's actually, that's a hilarious mix-up. Uh, yeah, no, we're definitely leaving that. Leaving it in. I mean, again, I, I mentioned the mix-up I made on one of our uh, recordings we had to scrap, but that was actually way funnier. I said it so calmly. Yeah, D.B. Cooper. I was just like, I was just like, oh, Mike, Mike. In my defense, he does list a lot of his books as D.G. Cooper. How is that your defense? That is, no, that's his, no, that's his styling. I mean, they're close, but Um, I guess that's better than mine. I mixed up, for those who don't know, I mixed up Michael Polanyi and Carl Polanyi. They're different people, apparently. Same name. Both Hungarian, whatever. Yeah. Um, Well, I was looking into the, like, Nazi connection to Condor. I uh, found this weird Ukrainian dude who... uh, allies with hitler literally up until the moment that he realizes that hitler is not going to give the slavs an independent country (laughs) oh no and he was like damn it he meant all that shit he said about the slavs that sucks you get lots Um, of interesting nazi allies over if you really examine the history like the weren't there some bosnian muslims at some point uh yes so hitler actually said that bosnian muslims were the only group of bosnians that you that were like aryan it's very strange only the muslims not the well hitler liked islam which is usually based but not when hitler does it yeah hitler should have converted to islam that would have been based and not been a nazi yeah well you know if you convert to islam you gotta you can't be a nazi i'm sure that islam and nazism are uh, not very compatible i'm sure someone could try and make it work but uh, the guy who was a MI6 agent. What's his name? I mean, you know, it, it definitely clashes with the more esoteric parts of Nazi ideology. It's it's still... Like, the holy tongue is still literally... A, it is quite literally a Semitic tongue. Yeah. Um, so, after Frank Knight, uh, what are we looking at? What are we looking at? We're looking in terms at a, of the Chicago school. We're looking at a murderer's row, my friend. We're looking at Milton Friedman, George Stigler, James Buchanan, Ronald Coase, and I think I'm missing someone on this list. Uh, Who would you place? I had Friedman, Stigler, Buchanan, and Tullock. Tullock. Uh, well, Tullock because has, they write a book together. Well, Tullock with Buchanan, right? Yeah, I don't yeah. have them separated. Yeah. Um, I just eliminated Tullock. Anyways, so we have again. These are we. These are going to be our major thinkers. Uh, these are the names to remember: Friedman, Stigler, Buchanan. I think principally. Mm, Theodore Schultz. Theodore Schultz. Yes, uh, we can. We'll do Schultz too. Uh, Friedman, Stigler, Buchanan, and Schultz. Principal names to remember, I think. And we wanted. We should probably talk a little bit about the actual. For those of us who are not familiar, uh, which. Again, because this podcast is frequented by usually self-described Marxists, most of them should be, but also by random people I meet on the street when I go out and flyer for ourselves. Also by the people on r slash... Conspiracy. 
neoconservatism and conspiracy. You've been advertising with the neocons. That's insane to me. Yeah, I was trying to get hate watches. Yeah, I mean, I don't think pro-conservative means, uh, what does that mean? Like, because we're not pro or anti-communist on that podcast, I don't think. Not, in, oh, not uh, we're not pro or anti-Soviet. If anything, there are definitely anti-neoconservatism, neo though. Well, on, I mean, in the Afghanistan series where we were advertising it, like, you yeah, know, we're not no, pro or anti-Mujahideen. We're not pro or anti-Soviet. Close, leaning closer to anti-Soviet, if anything. And anti-Mujahideen. And anti-Mujahideen, at least by the end. But then again, well, I mean, we support certain. Again, we have a we do we tell it like a story where we do have a stake in which part of the Mujahideen does win out. Yeah, we tried to present it fairly, uh, and that's what we're doing here. We're going to be way more opinionated though, because there is a there is a very clear there's a very clear unambiguous conflict. It yeah, seems like. unlike Afghanistan, there are good guys and bad guys in this one. So, who are our bad guys? Who are our weirdo anime villains that are seen in the background? Uh, Friedman, Stigler, Buchanan. Stigler is no, no. We're not. We're not defending Stigler. Not doing it. Stigler is almost less of a villain. Uh, Stigler's like the sympathetic villain. Okay, he's like that's fine. They're all, they're all Ganondorf, but Stigler is Ganondorf from The Wind Waker. How about that? I don't really know what that means, but only cool. kind of. I know who Ganondorf is. So yeah. Um, that's the so thoughtful should... and pensive Ganondorf. Is the one from The Wind Waker where he's just like oh. He just looks off. Everybody else is trying to kill Link, and he just, when Link comes to the room to kill him, he's just looking out the window, and he's just like, the sea. I coveted the wind, perhaps. You know, something like that. So, Theodore Schultz, I'll start off with, just because he is the department head. Oh, no, you uh, won't. We're not going there yet. Oh, okay. You know where we're going. Like I said, this is what I was trying to get to, my segue. God, this is disorganized. But we're having fun. Uh, this is what happens when Mike lets me direct the episode's so we should talk a little bit about the actual background. What did economic theory and thought look at look like at the time? So the Chicago School, again, Frank Knight joins the University of Chicago in the year 1929. This is the like figurehead of the first generation of the Chicago School. There is already a dominant, a, a newly dominant uh by this point, maybe not, maybe not by the twenties, but like certainly by the time the thirties kick in, by the t and definitely by the time that Friedman and Stigler show up, there is a, you know, titanic British economist that is already, you know, doing some heavy hitting work, as far as you know, establishing what the dominant form of economic thought is going to be for the next century. That, my friend, is John Maynard Keynes. Yeah, who you were silent for so long. Do you have an oh. objection? Sorry, I did not realize that you were kicking it back over to me. Oh, well, what, after 10 seconds of silence? Okay. Well, okay. that's when I started to I started to realize it like halfway through and I was like, okay, I'm just going to wait it out now. Fuck like, it. What do I just just make him just make him say it. Okay. So it's John Maynard Keynes. Like Keynesianism as the witches hit the way that I say it and uh you can correct me in the comments. I do not read the comments and I do not listen to the podcast. So, it doesn't matter to me. I'm speaking to avoid but uh, John Maynard Keynes and Keynesianism is becoming, like, to some degree, the it's the dominant like school of economic thought in most of the Western world, especially by the uh, post-war period. Yes, uh, and 
is kind of a reaction to the traditional liberalism that has taken place before this. A reaction against the Great Depression as well. Yeah, it's a response to laissez-faire economics and the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I believe uh, Keynes, it was 36, I think. I think it was the same year that, like, I don't remember. Something about, like, the real start of... Oh, it's the same year that Hoi 4 starts. That's right. <laughs> um, 1936, <laughs> that's the start of every Hoi 4 campaign. Uh, that's when Keynes publishes The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. Um, yeah, and... Unfortunately, Keynesianism also gives birth to my least favorite economic theory, uh, which is the magical money tree, but that's neither here nor there. Oh. Is it neither here nor there? You don't want to get into it? I don't want to get into MMT today. Okay. I mean, like, I, I think we talked about this before, but, like, you know, that's like a, that's a neo-Keynesian idea, which is, like, you know, whenever you put neo in front of something, it, it, you, you were, like, neo as a, if you use first principles thinking, one would assume that Neo is a prefix that means a uh, very shitty version of that really sucks and also isn't even at all. What's what's Neo-Keynesianism? Well, it's not really Keynesianism. And also, it's it sucks super hard. Yeah. Like, you know, what if I told you, Michael, that I was a Neo-Marxist now? I would probably uh, stop talking to you, honestly. It's the same thing with post-Marxists, though. Like, once someone tells me they're either of those, I'm just like, oh, okay, great. Mike, if you were a neo-Marxist, I wouldn't stop talking to you. You know why? I mean, I wouldn't stop talking to you personally, but, like, whew. It'd be, it'd be hard. Listen, Mike, you know, love conquers all, and I love you. I want you to know. I would ask you where you got your PhD at. Um, University of Austin. Nice. Good for you. Yeah. I'm hanging out with uh, JP in the... And, and I don't know, Barry Weiss, who else is there? That's a neo-Marxist? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Isn't Tony Negri in that group now? Oh, God. It's like that old George Carlin joke about, like, uh, you know, the difference between heaven and hell. And it's like in in hell, it's like the, the British cook the food. The, the Swiss are the lovers. The Italians are the mechanics and the Germans are the police, but it's like, oh, at the worst university in the world, uh, Jordan Peterson teaches psychology. Barry Weiss teaches journalism. <laughs> I told, so like, Vitri Debbie you, teaches your religion class. Yeah, the university at hell, yeah. And uh, Otto Skorzeny teaches business. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so Keynesianism is innovative, but it's not a full rejection of historical economics, right? Uh, no, but... We should we should we should frame it correctly in the sense that like you could probably it was a kind of revolutionary idea, like it was no, it, it was is... it was connected to the tradition it was connected to the traditions of like uh, classical economics but to in in the, on that same note so is Karl Marx's Capital yes that is connected very strongly to the traditions of uh, classical economics especially Ricardo Lacume but never. Smith. Hume, was he an economist? Yeah. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's specifically included in Marx's like uh, political economy. Oh, wow. When it's still a revolutionary attempt at scientific methods. I, sh I should reread Capital. I have not read it in years. That said, Marx doesn't live to see uh, 
the guys we're about to talk about, and that is a real fucking shame because he would have a field day with them. Oh yes. Well, the Marxists today have had a field day with them, but but we yeah, know we, how, have... we know how Marxists are. They're not very good at it. Yeah. Anyways, so let's get into some um, of the specific ideas of these gentlemen. So Milton Friedman, heaviest hitter in the Chicago school in terms of like later influence on economic thought and neoliberalism as a whole. Yes. And up to the point where he still has a significant influence on like that specific style of right libertarian today. Mm -hmm. In spite of the, in spite of what one might call the, uh, the complete failure of some of his ideas as practiced, but that being said, failure yeah. for who? Yeah, thanks. There, you, that's that's the rub, isn't it? Um, so he argues that uh, economic freedom is political power, and that the free market is the only way to realize it, uh, and that competition allows for cooperation without coercion. Uh, that's obviously an oxymoron. Co cooperation without coercion for who? Between firms? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, between. Well, so remember, everyone for Friedman is a monad. So I guess it's not a it's not a contradiction in terms because he is defining individuals cooperating versus firms competing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so as long as we don't assume that firms are made up of individuals, they are also individual objects, then it's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, as we all know, your job is made up of people. Our Friedman job is made up of less. Yeah. Friedman is uh, the second most popular economist, apparently, after John Maynard Keynes. Of a, by, by, done by a poll. So... If Keynes is the voice of like classical liberalism and of like, you know, the center left or even of the left, which is a fucking bizarre thing to say, then Milton Friedman is the economist of choice for the right. I mean, I as guess far Keynes as like, is like the, the left wing of the bourgeois. Yeah. Which is so bizarre to say. And yeah. that's what we get when we get into the Mont Montperlin society. Like, this is, again, this is where neoliberalism is born. I've seen descriptions of neoliberalism that talk about the incorporation of Keynesianism, which is insane to me because this initial society is filled with people that make Keynes look like a fucking Marxist. Uh, yeah. Like, all of these people are absolutely dog shit insane. Uh, and we were having a discussion before where you mentioned that uh, to accept their theories, you have to fundamentally believe that the world is absolutely perfect the way it is. Yeah, no. Uh, to, again, like, that, that is because they talk about the freshwater school and the saltwater school of economics, Keynesianism being the saltwater school in particular, if only because Keynesianism makes this point where it's like, hey, so what we need is we need certain regulations at a certain point of time. We need to, we need to have some discretion in in terms of our spending and in terms of like where we keep the nominal interest rate and the freshwater school is just like hmm that's very interesting but what if we what if we made things as good for 
for the ruling class as possible, and everything was just good forever. And we never yeah, had to the... do any kind of... What if capital capitalism is always in a state of decay? But, you know, what if it wasn't? What if it was just always good? When you they know, get wouldn't a rebirth, that be... they call it the supply-side revolution. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Freakonomics. Yeah, and this is kind of why Stigler is the most sympathetic in many ways of them. Uh, because he at least acknowledges that, like, there are issues with capitalism. It's just that he comes to uh, the dumbest fucking solution to fix them. Which I think is um, enough to impugn him on his own, but you seem to think otherwise. Look, I read Stigler after I had read Friedman and James Buchanan and Tullock's book. You just love a redemption arc. That's what you're hoping for. You're no, really hoping. Just... You're you're hoping Stigler. You're sitting there hoping Stigler comes around. Because he seems to be, because he seems to be, that arguably impugns him even more. Yeah, no, it makes him, like, worse because he... Anyways, so we should talk about George Stigler and the, and which theory was it? It was regulatory capture? Correct. Which, again, is a, I'm not, so regulatory capture is a theory that suggests that institutions that are tasked with regulating these kinds of like regulating labor regulating industry regulating the markets have a tendency towards corruption to serve interests that are not in like the public interest correct which is essentially michael an argument against any kind of regulation in essence yes in which the is why i don't it is think... either an argument against capitalism or against regulation so it, it it is almost certainly the latter. Oh, in his case, for sure, the latter. Yeah, uh, that's why I'm, again, you know, so you think that, like, again, you could make a, but you could use this idea as a, somehow an argument so against capitalism? You can, as people who watch the October 25th episode of Proxenos will know, uh, this is to some extent true, right? We do see this kind of corruption within regulatory agencies. Caveat, uh, the problem is not that regulation is bad and business should be allowed to exist unimpeded. Uh, the yeah, the no, issue is that business is bad and should not be allowed to impede on human rights. And so, like, and, and again, like, uh, arguments of this same nature have been made by, I, I'm recalling, like, uh, Leibovitz uh, for monthly review with uh, the conductor and the conducted, if you're familiar with that. Yes, I believe a similar like I believe a similar argument is made there, right? Yes, that like and that's not even just regulatory, but that's just like again, you start getting into weird Foucauldian ideas of like power in general if you go too far down this route. And I am not opposed to doing that, just not today. <laughs> yeah, I, my, brain my brain hurts. I got a lot on my plate, you know. So there are two kinds of regulatory capture. Uh, in the first one, it's literally bribes, donations. Uh, financial and material advantage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in the second one, the regulator begins to think like the industry. Uh, he argues that all regulation will be captured, which, again, I'm also going to dispute because I, uh, you know, I'm a Marxist and don't believe that anything inherently does anything. Um, and what about the rate of profit? It tends to fall. But it, it does, does not, it does not fall. inherently fall. It does not always fall either. 
And so that so it's a dialectical kind of position you're taking. Yes. Would you then admit at least that these agencies have a tendency to get to, to become captured? Yes. And so and so instead you see Stickler making the argument that they will all be captured. Correct. Do things that are are things that are captured ever uncaptured? Uh I mean yeah, I, like and so there is a, so they are, by what, what I'm trying to say is that, like, again, Stickler's argument might be identical to your own in the sense that, like, if you posit an infinite amount of time and there is a tendency for agencies to be captured, they can be, then eventually they will all be captured if and only if there is no tendency for them to become uncaptured. Right, which is really where Stickler goes wrong, is that... Uh regulation will be always and permanently trending towards this kind of absolute zero of uh we made the joke on twitter that we're gonna have a stock ticker for uh and you can short sell good things happen <laughs> uh like stigler is always short selling good things happen nothing good has ever happened to this man in regulation well again like to some degree we have to and this is a problem that maybe not the Chicago school people in general run into, but a lot of their disciples, which is that we are looking at a... If you're a disciple of Talib, he will call it the ludic fallacy. But if you're not a disciple of Talib, and you don't want to deal with his weird, over-intellectualized, like, repeating of other people's arguments, you would just call this the map territory fallacy. The fact that these, you know, tend towards... The fact that the tendency exists for these to go to absolute zero does not mean that they will. But that tendency right. is still valid insofar as it's a model. It's yes. a model to look at these things. And we have seen before regulatory agencies improve significantly. And this is also take, where Marxists tend to go wrong, but we'll get to that later. And take significant stances against big business at times. Mm -hmm. um, usually these are in periods when the left is already strong, right? That's true. Um of course, the ir irony of the Chicago school is they are writing these theories at a time when the left is strong. Uh, yeah, so what, post, well, in the 60s? Yeah, in the 60s, I guess. Yeah, we're and still... Also initially, I think, in the 1930s for the Chicago yes. school. So yeah. another period where you could, there was some strength to the left into the labor movement in the United States. Um, I mean, I guess... It might come back to like Luke Cash's idea that uh, each offensive by the bourgeois will have its own distinct form of irrationalism. Uh, and in many ways, this is the distinct form that takes shape during the 60s mm -hmm. and 30s. Uh, is this like, is the exact same push that we are seeing here? Um, and so we're going to, so who was in the, Let's let's re let's refocus on the Montpelier and society. So, Michael, are you familiar with the founders of the? Do you know their names? Because again, looking at this list again is always fascinating. Uh, Mises and Hayek are both there. It's Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, George Stigler and Milton Friedman, Frank Knight, and Karl Popper. I want to make that last I point hate clear. Karl I want to make this last point clear, just because I, I don't know if there's any like liberals who share the the 
intolerance of tolerance or tolerance of intolerance comic it's you know if you like that idea that's fine just elocute it in your own words don't make me look at a cartoon of Karl Popper because Karl Popper was fucking evil do not ever do that to me I, if I see you do it I will block you and I will probably report you to the police Any, anybody anybody who is actively sharing Karl Popper with or without knowledge of like just what a fucking just idiot or bad actor that he is uh, deserves to have their Twitter account banned. I hate Karl Popper so much. All my homies hate Karl Popper. I almost would like, I almost prefer when reactionaries use him. Well, they're using like him for the purpose. Because I'm just you, like, okay. Reactionaries are using Karl Popper for the purpose which he is intended. You know? Uh, yeah, and like Karl Popper in many ways justifies what the Chicago school claims to believe about themselves, uh, namely falsifiability, which is what he always cites as like the example that Marxism isn't falsifiable. Again, we don't worship science here. We don't care. Uh, but that said, uh, when you establish criterion explicitly almost to exclude something and then it's excluded right uh this is actually another problem where you are proving your own hypothesis not through research uh but through assumption um this invites the question of if chicago school economics are actually falsifiable they believe that they are So when they are falsified, what happens then? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like they've actually, again, the, the theory behind the Chicago school does change over time, but it does not seem as if they ever, you know, it does not seem as if every single failure that happens with the Chicago school, and again, failure is still arguable in this scenario, like actually leads to some kind of like hard change in theory to say, oh no, that didn't work at all. Right, like hypothetically, if they were following the views that they claim to be, both Chile and Soviet and the Soviet Union serve as experiments for these two respective schools of thought. For yes, it's hard to see how Chicago school economics doesn't fall into that into the exact same trap that that Marxist economics falls into, which is well, they just they, that wasn't real socialism, that wasn't real, that wasn't real neoliberalism. Right, and. Real neoliberalism has never been tried, Michael. You don't understand. Uh, yeah, well, now it has. You, Fucking, you... we did it in Iraq, too. Oh, yeah. But um, again, like, maybe this is just, maybe this should serve as a better indicator that not everything needs to be, not, every, not everything should be studied as a science. It's always, again, if you want to, if you want to bring, like, certain fields closer to a hard science, that is certainly admirable, and there is, you know, Reason for that kind, I, I, I like the I, I like the idea that these kinds of thoughts exist, honestly, but not in the sense that they should be, that they should take over. But like again, that's why when I studied uh, philosophy at the University of Houston, they make you read a ton of analytic philosophy, which makes sense. And as much as I really don't like most analytic philosophers, I am still glad that like that kind of like that that niche exists to think to try and do philosophy as if it is a hard science like i'm glad that some people are working on that and that they can enter into like this you want them to work together in a dialectical framework 
economics right. problem and is a field that I think works similarly. And I'm going to point it out here, but like the dialectical materialist concept of praxis implies a certain kind of scientific development in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, which is the testing of ideas uh, and then this process of Alfhaven to reconstitute practice, right? Which uh, is the process of like stripping away what doesn't work and stripping away what is bad and keeping what is good. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, you know, if like if that's what you mean by science, as in like testing ideas, reproducing them, and trying to reestablish a new theory based on that. Sure, I'm with you. Uh, I don't even agree with the way biology is studied. So, uh, no, I don't want you to study economics that way. So just to, again, we've, I, we're actually kind of taking a little bit long on this. Uh, so we should speed up a little bit to get back to Friedman in particular. Well, let's clear up with Montparlant Society. So this is the like meeting of the minds that, you know, more or less establishes the, like, this is the first time that there is a, like meeting of people that and these kinds of like theoreticians are coming together to eventually form like neoliberalism as an ideology. Yes. Right. And so to speak of one of their members who is again, a name that you've heard of plenty of times, I'm sure Milton Friedman. Uh, we want to get a little bit into the, you know, philosophy of Milton Friedman of like Friedman, Friedmanist economics. Uh, yeah. Side Friedmanian? funny story about Montpellerin. Uh, Frank Knight got mad because originally they were going to name it Acton Tocqueville, and he was mad about naming it after two Catholic aristocrats. <laughs> um. Anyways, yeah, so, so, so for Milton Friedman, we are getting into the, uh, he's a monetarist. It's monetarism. Which yes. is which is which is explicitly the belief that the um, well one that like the total like the role of the government in so far as like directing the economy should be focused on monetary policy should be controlling the amount of money in circulation because he believes that the total amount of money supply is what dictates quote unquote real prices. Yes, and specifically so is, they are limiting inflation. And this is yeah, principally these are anti-inflationary measures. And so this is what comes into, like, the, like, this is part of the debate that it's having with Keynesianism, which is a focus on monetary policy over fiscal policy. And it's, in a lot of ways, typified by the shift towards Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And it has, so it is a monetarist policy. Uh, and... You know, we see it in uh, the Maastricht Treaty, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, the Heritage Foundation, the Adam Smith Institute, and the Cato Foundation. Uh, it's I'm sure it's supply-side economics. Yeah, which is it, how we refer to all of this now. So, like, again, because, like, this, this kind of theory is put into practice, uh, first of all, probably in Chile. Uh, yes. With the advent of the Chicago boys, who were a number of different uh, Latin American theorists and intellectuals from... 
mostly from Chile, but from a lot of other different countries as well, who were either who were educated, some of them directly under Friedman, and some others by just people who were associated with him, either at the University of Chicago itself or by its affiliate, the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile. Uh, yes, which is where Theodore Schultz comes in. Right. Um, so Schultz is approached by the uh, secretary, the deputy secretary of state for Latin America, mm-hmm. uh, who specifically tells him that he should begin to bring his programs and the theories that are being developed at Chicago mm-hmm. to Chile. Uh, that is Albion Patterson. That's in 1953. So this is before this is 20 years before the coup in Chile. Yes. Um, and it takes a while to incubate these ideas in the established Chilean economists, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you do a program like this, you aren't looking for control over Chile tomorrow because that would be unreasonable. Uh, this is a long con. Uh, And in a lot of ways, the Chicago boys become uh, like fucking Lucy uh, sitting there and holding the football for Linus. Okay. For for Charlie Brown, dude. Yeah. Charlie Brown, whatever. I haven't watched Charlie Brown in years. Linus doesn't kick footballs. He's always talking about the Bible and shit. Oh, I thought he was the one with the blanket. That is him. Oh, okay. He, He holds a blanket. He sucks his thumb. You've seen that he was always talking about the Bible. Maybe I just Is maybe it? that's just the maybe that's just the Christmas episode. I don't know. I thought he talks about the great pumpkin. I think that's in the well in the Halloween episode, yeah. So he's 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 a Christian who believes in, in, in pagan gods. It's hard to hard to parse. So as we talk about the Chicago boys, we're seeing this uh development of a an ideological framework uh, that sees citizens as less than citizens, right? It sees them as consumers. The only source of political power is uh, economic freedom, which like- but certain A certain kind of economic freedom. It's not, this is not the Rooseveltian four freedoms. Right, it is- economic freedom. It is not freedom of, it is not freedom from want. It is freedom of consumer choice. Yes, uh, it is like Gorbachev sitting in a pizza hut. Yeah, that kind of freedom. Rather than like the freedom to not starve to death. It is a convert- quite conversely, it is the uh, freedom to starve to death. Yeah, if you choose not to buy food, it's your choice. If you choose not to, if no one chooses to employ you. Yeah, uh, and that becomes the ultimate problem for Chile because, uh, as one might expect, with the with the kinds of like policies that were put in place, it was the it was principally the monetary policy and the anti-inflationary measures that drove up unemployment in Chile to remarkable levels. Yeah, the. Actual effects of the Chicago Boys are obscene on Chile itself uh, and still lasting today. So the reason that it's encouraged is because they see it as this bulwark against communism 
which it is for the ruling class. Mm -hmm. This is what was is referred to as the Chilean miracle. This, yeah. this period in this period in history, and it is a. Um, it is it is one of the it is one of the absolute most insane, uh, posited victories. And again, this is probably the ultimate. This is probably the ultimate like a nail in the coffin for considering something like the Chicago School a scientific way of looking at economics, just because it has uh, absolutely no idea how to fucking evaluate its its successes, even from a perspective of well, we just want. We just want the very rich to get even, you know, very richer. Or from the perspective of, like, we want freedom, right? We yeah. Like, that is what they emphasize a lot of the time. Or we want independence of things like banking, which, again, the head of the bank is appointed by people, which, you know, that is not an independent central bank, mm -hmm. de facto. If he can be removed or appointed by Pinochet, as an independent person, uh, it only again it comes back to like is a firm an independent object or is a firm a thing comprised of people? Mm -hmm. If the answer is the former, then yeah, sure, it works fine. Uh, if the answer is the latter, then the fact is that the central bank is also comprised of people who are selected by people. Uh, otherwise, they're just all there by magic. So we should make some points here. Uh, number one, uh, the reign of Augusto Pinochet lasts in Chile from 1973 until 1990. By the end of that period, 48% of Chileans lived below the poverty line. It took only yes. 10 years of moving away from those experiments to reduce that back to 20. And this is, again, this is poverty as, you know, measured by the IMF or whoever. So the same metric that people might say, you know, China lifted 800 million, but whatever. Again, still, this is an important, this is important to note. Secondly, because of some of the catastrophic failures, the, the catastrophic shock that was introduced by these reforms, by 1976, the Pinochet government actually controlled more of the economy directly as the government than the socialist regime that preceded it. So... This is where we get from a point where we're saying that neoliberalism is uh, a one step closer to fascism to sort of now neoliberalism just is fascism. Yeah, it becomes like it's just, just it, is, uh, it is it is functionally the same. Like, are these businesses all privatized in spite of being owned by the government? Yeah. Yeah. Everything is directed for profit incentive. Yeah, exactly. One like one thing seemed to again there was one the one metric that people point to that Chicago schools would point to as being a positive result of this is the uh, growth of get this average GDP per capita. <laughs> oh, that's and, good. Yeah, that's great. Um, the problem is that other indicators of economic growth in Chile are all still fairly stagnant by this period in time. The yeah. rate of growth of the GDP is actually, again, uh, significantly volatile. So 
Yeah, and the Chicago Boys formed this alliance with Pinochet to oppose the so, uh, quote-unquote socialism of Allende. Uh, Allende is a socialist. Uh, Allende, however, was uh, explicitly non-revolutionary and explicitly had a made this very yes. clear. Not Soviet-aligned. Yeah, he was uh, part of the non-aligned movement. He was very peaceful to the point where even when they try to remove him from power, he refuses uh, to start a guerrilla movement. Um, but he promised to nationalize the mines that were owned by the U.S. Uh, so they backed Pinochet during the coup. Uh, after the coup, the Chicago boys approach Pinochet with something called El Ladrillo, the brick. The brick. Oh, the brick where they see uh, six key issues mm -hmm. that they are going to solve. Uh, low economic growth. Uh, quote, unquote, statism. Okay, so failure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Pinochet did not reduce the strength of the state in Chile. Uh, shortage of employment, inflation, lack of agricultural progress, and poverty in key population segments. They debatably solved one, maybe two of these. Which one? Uh, low economic growth, which like there was significantly more economic growth for a brief period of time. Yeah, very briefly. Uh, and they did stop inflation at one point almost completely, uh, very briefly. Uh, and then that all collapsed. So, eh. you know, like debatably, they assisted with two of these. Oh, I should clarify the uh, actual growth in average GDP per, per capita compared to the rest of Latin America does not actually start until 1990. Which kind of makes sense because their economy was crippled. So, yeah. Again, we can't again, even for for this experiment to have been a success, like we're not expecting that they again produce like these actual miracles. We're just again highlighting that it is really after it is really the liberalization of Chile from like these weird fascist metrics and also like the introduction of some real like sensical reforms to this runaway monetary policy that causes some of these crises uh, that starts to produce the economic miracle in Chile as it is described. So no matter how you look at it, it's very much a case of uh, Friedman doing the Bush in 2003 thing, where he's got the banner that says mission accomplished. Like kind of the best thing you can say for most of them is that uh, they are hopeful. That I, they the never, thing? like what? none of these ideas actually turn out. None of them ever even kind of look like they're going to, and they just mm -hmm. continue to fucking hammer away at them. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, they don't even turn out like by the metric that is used by the Chicago boys, specifically because one of their solutions to one of these problems is uh, to open Chile up to international investment, right? Mm -hmm. So this kind of promise of like a strengthened national economy uh, is undercut by the fact that who is really being strengthened is like international capital. This is true. Like, yes, the U.S. jumps in and like people in the U.S. get 
viciously wealthy off Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chileans don't. No, Chileans become Chileans are impoverished. Yeah. They implement like hardline austerity and monetary control. They remove most social services uh, and privatize them. Uh, which is always a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. It's a bad idea. It's never once worked. Uh, they privatize the steel industry, the electricity, the telecoms, the uh, and then the big one, right? That being? Uh, the pension plan. Oh, yes. Uh, so Piñera uh, individualizes the pensions uh, through a program called the AFP, which dramatically deepens poverty for most Chileans. Yeah, no. So employment... Uh, unemployment skyrockets to 22% or somewhere around there in 1976, and then does it again after the monetary crisis of 82, skyrockets to like 31, 32%. That is, that, those are rates that are higher than the Great Depression in the United States. Yeah. Um, even by their own metric to decide unemployment, right? Because they like do the thing that everyone else does where like you don't count your own unemployment the same way you count everyone else's. You're just like, ah, well... That guy's not really unemployed because he's not really looking for work. If he was looking for work, he might be employed. How do I know? Mm-hmm. Uh, they go from 5 to 15% uh, within a year, mm-hmm. which is not great numbers. Yeah, no, there are in- incredible shocks to the actual like initial runaway monetary policy in Chile that just absolutely crippled the economy. On several different occasions, it is only once these are finally stabilized and normalized uh, by the introduction of like, like the liberalization of the like political regime, that some of this starts to go away. We yeah. Mentioned, we should mention exactly the, the Chicago Boys themselves, exactly how many roles they actually filled in the Chilean cabinet. They hold uh, the, is the the Minister of Finance, Minister of Economy on three separate occasions, all successive, Minister of Labor and Pensions, President of the Central Bank, which by this point is made independent from the government. Still appointed, but still, again, it is, it's like the Federal Reserve. It is a, it is a separate private institution, technically, technically speaking. I actually just learned the other day that Chile was the first country in the world to privatize their energy infrastructure. Really? Yeah, because Australia is currently proposing in Victoria uh, renationalizing their energy infrastructure. Great call, Australia. I hope you do it. I hope you don't have another constitutional crisis. Yeah. Well, yeah. I hope, uh, you know, we're hoping that Charles is less less prone than Liz was to working with fucking A, man. Yeah. But also, like, not just, okay, so the president of the central bank, minister of planning, the budget director... Minister of Labor, and the Pension Superintendent. All of these roles, at some point or another, and usually throughout the throughout the actual reign, 73 to 90, by which point most of the Chicago boys are kicked out, and yet will still take credit for some of those, like, 1990 reforms. They were running the country. Friedman has the most uh, insane but also hilarious response, which is just like, uh, in 1990, or around there, 
Pinochet is finally uh, taken out and there is a democratic election held. And he said, well, look at that, you know. In the end, they got to have a they got to have a real not military strongman, but a democratically elected country. That's a after 17 years of, of, of pain and misery. Go Chicago. Yeah. The Bears, you know? Yeah, whatever, it was or whatever uh, the fucking mascot is. Overwhelming overwhelming success for the Chicago boys. Uh and they really do look at it that way. That's what's uh so it, it has like the same vibe as when like the Catholic Church says that uh the greatest miracle you can receive is stigmata. <laughs> It's the same kind of miracle, except it's the popul population of Chile that is uh, that that is that they are the ones being sacrificed. Yeah, um, and in, and and they are quite literally dying for the sins of others. Yeah, in a very sad way. So this, I think, is. Like now that we've again, so other people like Socrates Rizzo or Francisco Gil Diaz in Mexico, there's Adolfo Adolfo Diz, and again, this is funny in Argentina, a guy named Adolfo. <laughs> it's like a bad joke. Uh, uh, yeah, there's lots of those guys. Carlos Rodriguez and Rock Fernandez in Argentina, as well as Paulo Guerres in Brazil. So in Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, there are others in countries like Panama and Peru that are also again coming out of this particular like the amount the number of chicago boys is absolutely staggering yeah it's this is not we're not referring it's not like a clandestine like group of nine like a wu-tang kind of thing it's like there this refers to really a generation of economic thinkers that is coming out of the chicago school of economics and being imported into latin america being re-imported i should say because they are from latin america but then they leave and they come back to implement this kind of policy they're being re-imported wholesale there's tons yeah. of these guys there's tons of them and like i think that what is particularly strange about it is that they are so well respected immediately after returning um and immediately after like, you know, Jose Pineda makes his name by criticizing Allende's reforms, which are, of course, of the Latifundia system, which is like a semi-feudalism. Mm -hmm. um, it is almost undeniable that the Latifundia system is opposed to neoliberalism, right? Because it does not represent this kind of like absolute capital. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't even slow them down like they're just like oh yeah no we should uh yeah we can probably shit on that hit the gas um also william f buckley was a member of the montpelier society what yeah wait yeah wait, i mean it's worth wait, remembering like uh, who William F. Buckley. The let me hold on. The CIA agent. I I, I yeah I, I. Where are you seeing this? William F. Buckley. Uh, he's on their notable members list. Oh, 
Oh, okay, yeah, forty. It's in forty-seven. Why did I think it was thirty-eight? Okay, because I was confused. I was like, wait, what? Okay, so again, but the Mont the Montpellier Society was not just one meeting. It was a, it it is a still existing think tank. So. Yeah, with, uh, still existing horrible people. Some of them. Some of them are dead. Yeah, those are the good ones. Yeah, those are my favorites. Um, Anyways. So, all of the countries that we're going to talk about will see some level of this kind of policy go into place. They will see, they will definitely see some form of like, uh, again, because there had been a, because there had been like waves of successful, like, communist or socialist or just leftist adjacent leftist influenced thought happening in all of these countries that have all been targeted and all been overthrown again they the cia was not prone to overthrow countries that were putting in economic policy that was to their interest if pinochet had been elected just by fair election and was putting all these like putting all of this into place himself on his own the cia would not see any reason to overthrow him because you can see how they target, again, they target someone like Perón Last. Right. Who is still going to be friendly to the U.S. He's still going to allow investment. But there's going to be some level of populist reform. And so on the next episode of Timber Sycamore Presents Operation Condor, that'll be Series 2, Episode 3, we will be discussing exactly, you know, by what mechanisms, you know, this kind of repression of the populace took place and how these different how we're going to be talking about the actual infrastructure of Operation Condor how it operated as its own what has been referred to as a parastate so that's what we're going to be discussing uh, this has been Temper Sycamore presents Operation Condor episode 2 I'm your I'm one of your hosts I'm the better looking host Hayden DePriest and I'm the smarter host Michael Petroselli I will grant you that that's that's our dynamic I'm the color commentator I'm Hannibal Burris you know that's, I'm Andy Richter